Once again, our text of study is 1 Peter chapter 2, 9 through 12. Once you arrive there, as we are accustomed to doing, would you please stand, if you are able, for the reading of God's authoritative word on the Lord's day. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, the apostle Peter writes as he is carried along by the Spirit of God, beginning in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you, As sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for this opportunity to open the words of the living God. Lord, may these not be words that go in one ear and out the other, but may they be be words that we think deeply upon. May we be reminded on a daily basis of our need for the gospel. For it is the gospel which transforms lives. And may it be as well that we, by the power of the gospel, by the power of your spirit, go out and share this good news to a lost and broken world. Send your son's precious and only name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Who am I? What is my purpose? These are two questions that I would argue are the biggest questions individuals ask of themselves in their life on earth. Some have answers. They may be Christian answers. They may be secular answers. While some will go their entire lives and maybe even to the end of their life without ever having an answer to these two questions, who am I? What is my purpose? In our passage of study this morning, I believe the Apostle Peter answers both of these questions for us as believers in Christ. So there is a prerequisite to this, that in order to have the answer for these questions, who am I, what is my purpose, the answer is given to Christians, those who have responded in faith to Christ, to his saving work on the cross. And so this passage includes what I believe to be the most insightful and encouraging portrayal of the identity and purpose of the people of God anywhere in the New Testament, In this passage, we will find that the New Testament church, according to Peter, is the true Israel of God. The New Testament church is the continuation, the maturation of the believing remnant of God's covenant people. And this is to say that the titles, the honors, the privileges, the responsibilities that were given and predicted of Israel of old are now here applied to the new covenant people of God. Those who are under the blood of Jesus Christ. And I cannot say that enough. This is for people who are under the blood of Jesus Christ. My goal this morning is twofold. 
for us, one, to see that the church exists for many reasons, but none more important or urgent than to proclaim and make known verbally and visibly the excellencies and attributes of the greatness of God. And so, that's long-winded. Another way we can restate that is this. The church exists to make Christ known. The church exists to make Christ known. And number two, as those who once abided in darkness, who were not God's people, who now live in the glorious light of the kingdom of his dear son, Jesus Christ, we are to live as those who have experienced this, who have been brought from death to life. For no purposes, we're going to split this text into two parts or two points of study. And so if you're taking notes, first, we are going to look at the privileged place of God's people. The privileged place of God's people. Second, we will look at the conduct of God's people. The conduct of God's people. So the privileged place of God's people and the conduct of God's people. So first, let's look together at the privileged place of God's people, beginning with verse 9. Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter, rather neatly here for us in this verse, defines the identity of the church in four ways which will serve as subpoints for us. So the privileged place of God's people, four subpoints. Number one subpoint, the church is chosen. The church is chosen. Notice the use of Peter's, uh, of Peter's use of the word but to contrast what he has said before. Prior to verse 9, what Peter has been building upon is the glorious promise of God that those who have faith in Christ have received a living hope. It's not a dead hope. It's not lying in the corner of the room dying. This is a hope that is alive and well through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is through his abundant mercy that we are given a living hope that gives me a new perspective in the midst of trials, in the midst of uncertainty. It gives me hope to look beyond and knowing that something good is coming. And this is not too uncommon for us. You know, the, the way that we get through the week sometimes is knowing that something good is coming. Maybe we look forward to UT playing South Carolina and it ends up being disappointing, right? But we look forward to things. It helps us get through the week because we know something good is coming. Well, we have an eternal blessing Amen. that we see in the future, that we have partial fulfillment here and now in which we see transformed lives in the life of a Christian by the Spirit of God, but we look forward to the day in which God is going to make all things new, and so we have a living hope. And this hope is not one that is imperishable. This hope is not one that is perishable, but it is imperishable. It's not one that is defiled, but it is undefiled. And it is a hope an inheritance that is kept by God's power, not our own. And this is so important for us as a point of application that your salvation is not secured by your performance. Praise God. Your salvation is secured by the blood of Christ. It is in light of the abundant mercy of Christ to take what once was dead, what once was broken, what was once lost, and to restore it 
to make it new. And Peter calls the saints, those who have experienced this goodness of the gospel, to live for holiness. To live in such a way that honors the one who has redeemed you from your broken and sinful state. And as a way of reminder from when we looked at this text just a few months ago, holiness is pursued not as a means of earning salvation, but rather out of obedience to the salvation already accomplished for you. In other words, I don't, I don't pursue do-goodness, I don't pursue holiness to earn my place, but rather out of a reconciled relationship with God through Jesus Christ, I respond with obedience. I don't do to receive, I have received, and so I do. A life of holiness is sought after because one treasures in and takes pleasure in Christ. There are those, as Peter points out, however, that do not treasure Christ and are therefore disobedient to the word, as verse 8 says. And so this leads us to our contrast when Peter says, these people disobey the word, but you, you Christian, are chosen race. The church community, and this is what Peter wants us to see, I believe, the church community is set in stark contrast to those who do not treasure Christ. You have been chosen. They are disobedient to the word. The church community is a chosen race, which we should not think this has anything to do with ethnicity, but rather what Peter is referring to is a spiritual race, one that is not characterized by color or culture. It is characterized by creed. The church race is defined by the one in whom we believe, treasure, and take pleasure in, Jesus Christ. The second sub-point is this. The church is a royal priesthood. So first, the church is a chosen race. It has been set apart. Second, the church is a royal priesthood. As believers, we are not merely just a passive building in which God dwells, but we are active participants in worship. In the Old Testament, the Levitical priests from the tribe of Levi brought sacrifices into the temple to atone for the sins of the people as an act of worship. But now what we see is that the tabernacle is replaced by the Christian church. The atoning altar is replaced by Jesus Christ. Our sacrifice once for all time so that we do not need to continue to bring lambs to be slaughtered. But rather, Jesus has become the innocent lamb. He is the innocent lamb. The one who sacrificed once for all time for the forgiveness of sins and the Levitical priests are replaced by all who believe in Christ. And we can now approach the throne of God with confidence, as the author of Hebrews says, because of the blood of Christ. We are a royal priesthood Because we as a people have come under the dominion of the king of the universe, the Lord of lords, the king of kings. And just as Old Testament Israel was blessed to be a blessing to other nations, we as a New Testament church, as priests of God, are called to spread his grace and truth to a needy world. Third sub-point, the church is a holy Nation. So we have been chosen. We are in stark contrast to the world around us. We are a royal priesthood. We are under the dominion of God and sent out 
to be bearers of the gospel news. And third, we are a holy nation. No people group can claim to be a holy nation except the church. Those who, as 1 Peter 1, 2 says, have been set apart in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus. If you've been with us for the past few weeks, you know that Pastor Perry, our senior pastor, has been walking through marks of what makes a church a church. As a point of emphasis for this subpoint, going off of what Pastor Perry has already share, shared countless times, the church should look different than the world around it. A church should look different than the world around it. I firmly believe that if a church begins to look like the world around it in a cultural sense, we should begin to wonder, is this a church? Is this the holy nation God is speaking about? Are these the people whom he has purchased for his purposes? If the church begins to support contemporary cultural narratives, we may begin to wonder who is the head, the culture, or Christ? There, would, there were some who would say that the church is based upon its people, hypocritical or unholy, despite our claims of being a holy nation. Just recently, I read a tweet from someone who is leaving such and such church because of the unholy behavior of some congregants. Likewise, there are some who I've read about and I, I know who will not grace the doors of a church because of the hypocrisy of its people. Now, it very may well be that these individuals are interacting with cultural Christians who simply wear the banner of Christ without living a life of being a follower of Christ, meaning they are Christians simply because they attend a Lord's Day service, not because of experiencing the transforming power of the gospel. These individuals, cultural Christians, may use the scriptures simply to judge others rather than first allowing the scripture to judge their own hearts, thus coming off as hypocritical. There's a lot that can be said here, but for application purposes, I think it's most important for us to notice a difference, notice a distinction between two terms, justification and sanctification, as it relates to functional Holiness, and we'll define these terms. So, first, justification. This is a term that the Bible uses to describe an act of God by which those who are unrighteous in themselves are nevertheless declared righteous before God while still in the sinning state. Justification is a deliverance from the penalty of sin and is a past action for all believers accomplished by Christ at the cross. Paul offers a summary of justification in Romans 5.18 when he says, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to sanctification and life for all men. We who were once 
unrighteous, not because we sinned once here and there and so we became unrighteous, but because we were born into unrighteousness. Jesus Christ, the God-man who is perfect in righteousness, stands as our mediator, as our advocate, as our intercessor of Christians despite their sinful state. We are not justified because of our works, because our works are filthy rags before a holy God, but rather we are saved by the perfect work of Christ to stand in confidence despite our sinfulness. Sanctification, by contrast, is not the act of God declaring a person righteous. Rather, it is the continual process by which God is actually making a person righteous. Sanctification is the deliverance from the power of sin and is a present and continual process of believers becoming Christ-like, accomplished by the Holy Spirit's power and presence. Sanctification then represents a believer's victory over flesh, to be no longer enslaved to sin, no longer a slave to only doing unrighteous deeds, but now having a new perspective, a renewing of the mind, as Paul says in Romans 12, we are able to see and do things that glorify and honor God. Sanctification is our victory over flesh, the world, and the devil. Paul writes in Romans 7, 24 and 25, wretched man that I am, Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I myself, I serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Paul recounts here the process of sanctification, that through Christ, he and those of us who are believers are facing a new battleground in which Because we are made new in Christ, we no longer only do what is sinful by nature, but we also by grace pursue what is righteous and good. I've heard it said, and maybe I've expressed this to you all at some point, that the mind is the strategic battleground where flesh and spirit fight. The mind is the strategic battleground where flesh and spirit fight. Because God's word has not been written on my heart as a believer, there is a war. Because God's word has been written on my heart as a believer, there is a war that is waging. As Paul discusses in Romans 6 of desiring to do what is good, but doing what you hate, sin. And although we do not see total restoration on this side of heaven, meaning we will never arrive at a state of sinless perfection, We do stand confidently and boldly in the promises of God. For the ultimate end result of our sanctification is that we will be found in Christ's image. As Paul describes in Romans 8, 29 and 30. He writes this, For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he may be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. This is a glorious promise in the text of Scripture that although we will surely stumble in our pursuit of holiness, my status before God will not be shaken 
by my performance. For my salvation is not based on works, but is based on the calling and the justifying power of God, who will indeed, at the restoration of all things, glorify us. So what does this have to do with holiness? Although we are a holy nation as God's people, functionally, in our practice, we at times fall short. We fall short. May it be that when we fail, when we sin, not only do we practice the diligence of running to God in confession and repentance, but may it be that we have the humility to seek the forgiveness of others. After all, we are a reflection of Christ and his church. And what an opportunity it is to, when we stumble, when we fall, when we come up short, to show the humility, the grace, the mercy, and the kindness of Christ in these moments. The fourth and final sub-point is this. The church is a people for his own possession. So we are chosen. We are set apart. We are a royal priesthood. We are called to be sent out with the good news of the gospel. And we are, and we are a people for his own possession. Simply put, the church and its people are his. Notice as this gets twisted often in our culture, God is not our possession in the sense that we are over him. There is a sense, of course, in which God is our God and we are his people, but it is not that we have come over God, that he is now ours, that we are over him. There is the creator-creature distinction. The creature is not over the creator. It is not God is the elder's possession, nor is it God is the senior's pastor possession, in the sense that we get to call the shots. But we are his possession as the church. We have been bought with the price of the precious blood of Christ and adopted into his grace and mercy. We are the clay, as Romans 9 says, and we are not over the potter. Notice, too, that although God owns everything, he has, through Christ, obtained for himself a special and uniquely blessed people, a people who, by grace, have believed in Christ. I've often heard the sentiment, maybe you've heard it as well, that we are all children of God. We're all children of God. And while it may be that the person intends to mean, maybe they're speaking to Christians in, in the room and they're saying, hey, we're all children of God, or it might be that they are you know, speaking uh, broadly in the sense that you know, we are all children because we are all made in the image of God. But there are some who may mean, in a salvific sense, that we are all God's children. Yet I believe the scripture is clear on this, that not everyone is God's child, nor is, everyone's, is everyone God's own possession. Right. To be God's child, to be his, is not something one is born into, but rather it is something you are born again into, Amen. spiritually. Listen to these words in John's gospel in John 1, 12. It says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Paul in Ephesians 2 effectually says that we are either children of wrath or we are children of God. We are either God's possession or we are not. 
Paul writes in Ephesians 2, 3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. According to Paul, we are not all children of God, but rather because of sin, we are all first by nature children of wrath. The life of a child of wrath is characterized in that verse by living for passions of the flesh and carrying out the desires of the body and mind with no regard for their sin. It is not as, you know, speaking to Christians who stumble in their walk with Christ, but someone who is living in sin. Someone who is occupying a life of darkness with no guilt, no remorse, no acknowledgement for their sin before a holy God. Similarly, Peter says in our text in verse 10, once you were not a people, once you had not received mercy. There, there is a distinction here. There are those who are God's possession, God's children, and then those who are not, who are children of wrath. Scripture is clear that humanity, or, or maybe more personally, those of us who are here in this room this morning fall on one side or the other. Children of wrath, children of God. God's possession, not God's possession. But the beauty of the gospel is this. Although we are by nature, in our innermost being, children of wrath, God through his son Jesus Christ has made a way of salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake, or another way we could say that, for your state of need, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this righteousness is not something that is earned, but rather is received by faith through the perfect work of Jesus Christ. If this morning... If you have come to realize the state that you are in, as we all once were, would you consider the answer to this question? Is Jesus Christ the only Son of God who bore the sin of man and died in my place so that I may become a child of God? We would love to discuss this more with you following the service. If you go out these main doors and take a left, there's a room called Crossroads. There'll be a pastor there. I'll be here after the service. We would love to dialogue with you about this. Before moving on to our second main point, we see in these verses the identity of the church and its people. The church is chosen, is a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and a people for his own possession. We see also the purpose of the church and its members in verse nine. We have the identity and then we see a purpose in verse nine, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. This is our purpose, to proclaim the excellencies. And so what are we proclaiming specifically? Verse nine answers that for us. The excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. My purpose, your purpose, the church's purpose as a chosen royal, holy, and being children of God is to preach the gospel. This is our purpose. My purpose is not to grow proud, but it is to recognize the grace and mercy that has been upon my life and preach it to a lost and broken world. 
My purpose is not to take a moral high horse and say, well, I've done my work. I've received it clocking out. No. You have been changed. You've been brought out of darkness to proclaim the excellencies of this work of Christ. We should never arrive at a place in which we believe we are too good for the gospel. Nor should we think that we need extra gimmicks outside of the gospel to transform lives. For it alone holds the power to save. The second main point I want us to look at in the text is the conduct of God's people. So we looked at the privileged place of God's people that they are a chosen, royal, holy, and we are God's own possession with the purpose of making the excellencies of Christ known. And second, the conduct. What do God's people look like? Peter writes in verse 11, but I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep in mind that Peter's exhortation to abstain from passions of the flesh is pronounced in light of the mercy of Christ. He's not beginning with the exhortation to do holiness. He's beginning with, you have been brought from darkness to light. You have been saved. You have been transformed because of what Christ has done, then do. So this is his exhortation for us. Peter acknowledges that as a holy nation, as the church, we live as sojourners and exiles. Recognizing this world is not our home. When you become a Christian, you recognize, hopefully by practice, by function, that you look different now than the world around you. And that's because your citizenship has changed. It's no longer on earth, rather it is in heaven. Paul likewise exhorts the church of Philippi in this way. He says in Philippians 3.18, For many of whom I have told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship, Paul goes on to say, is in heaven. And from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Once again, a contrast is presented. There are the enemies of the cross. There are those who are children of wrath. There are those who are not God's possession. There are those who are of the world. Yet those who are God's children, those who are his possession have received a different citizenship, a heavenly one. And therefore, Peter says, in light of this new citizenship, as God's holy people, we are to be characterized by abstaining from shameful passions that wage war against the soul as a testimony to what God has done in our lives. And notice, Peter says, these lusts, these passions of former ignorance wage war against the soul. It is easy to see how the pursuit of fleshly lust can destroy our physical body. Just ask the alcoholic dying of liver disease or the, ask the sexually immoral person with AIDS or one of the 350,000 people on this earth who contracted a sexually transmitted disease in the last 24 hours. But Peter reminds us that fleshly lust also wage war against the soul. Some escape disease in the physical body when they sin, but the disease and death of the inner man is a penalty that no one 
can ever escape, that the flesh cannot escape. As believers in Christ, we not only strive to abstain by the Spirit of God from fleshly passions in light of the gospel, in light of the mercies of Christ, but also to be an example to the non-believer. I've heard it said that you are the only Bible some people will ever read. And this is true, for many will not step a foot in a church due to interactions as we talked about with other Christians. And it may even be that non-believers want nothing to do with Christianity because the differences in lifestyle between them and the Christian is few and far between. It may be that a non-believer will see a self-proclaimed Christian, a cultural Christian maybe, and say, well, they don't live too differently than I do. Maybe this Christian thing isn't all it's mocked up to be. But it may be that our conduct among non-believers is honorable, so that when they see us, they see Christ. I tell my students, we don't, we don't need more hunters in the world. We don't need more of our leaders in the world. We need more of Christ. So may it be when our students, speaking of student ministry, when they see me, when they see our leaders, when they see you all as older members of a congregation whom they look up to, they see Christ. They see the testimony of God working in and through your life. And may we too have the humility to when we fall short because we are in the process of sanctification, may it be that we have the humility to seek forgiveness. And that's hard. Not long ago, I had had to do this as a student pastor because I made a, you know, just a goofy remark that I shouldn't have made. You know, I, I wear the title of student pastor But fundamentally, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer in Christ. That's the name I bear. And so that was an opportunity for me to seek humility. Was it easy? No. It's not easy to admit you're wrong. It's not easy to ask for forgiveness sometimes. But ultimately, being humble, seeking forgiveness, recognizing your wrongs, this is a great position for the life of a Christian. This is a position that recognizes the grace and the mercy of Christ upon one's life and looking forward to the living hope in which Christ will make all things new. We do all this not as a means of earning something, but rather out of being chosen, being called, being set apart as God's own children. This morning is my prayer that we have come to realize or be more confident in our identity as God's people and our purpose of making the excellencies of Christ known in our community, in our workplace, and in our homes. To include our time, listen to this brief quote by Charles Spurgeon. He says this, The Bible is not the light of the world, it is the light of the church. But the world does not read the Bible, the world reads Christians. You are the light of the world. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for this opportunity that we have to study your word. God, I'm thankful that through my exhaustion and my fumbling of some words, that God, it is not in my eloquency. It is not in my power. It is in the power of the gospel to transform and save lives. And so, Lord, we ask 
by your grace, by your mercy, that your word would fall on good soil this morning. That we would recognize, if we are non-Christians in the room, we recognize the beauty of the gospel and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if we respond in faith to that good news, to receive it by faith, we have the right, as your word says, to become children of God. And Lord, if we are believers in this room, Lord, would you, by your spirit, help us in the process of sanctification to be honest with our failures and to rely on your grace and your mercy and to point a lost and a broken world to you. For there is no other name under heaven in which man can be saved than the name that is Jesus Christ. May we put our faith and our hope in your son. It's in your son's precious and only name that we pray.